you know, if you look at this in the big kind of global picture, Russia's become for China the drunk, embarrassing uncle at the uh, Thanksgiving table. They're now related to him. They've they've signed up. They're with the Russians through thick and thin. Uh, but the Chinese are trying to portray themselves as worthy of global leadership and presenting a reasonable alternative to a Western-based, Western-led international order and all these other kinds of things. And Russia is, over time, showing itself to be uh, less effective militarily than when China and Russia announced this quasi-alliance right before the war began, uh, less politically uh, coherent than before, less competent than before, poorer than before. And that's not good when you're looking for an ally. Over this past weekend, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, launched a rebellion, or a coup, or a putsch, or it's hard to discern exactly what that was, against President Vladimir Putin's rule. As of now, it seems that Prigozhin has halted what appeared to be a military or at least a political offensive against Moscow. It's difficult to know where these events in Russia are headed. The situation is fluid, and we aren't going to leap to conclusions on this podcast. After all, you have Twitter for that. But our guest today, Richard Fontaine, told me over the weekend that he's skeptical that these events reflect real cracks in Putin's rule. Now, if you do follow the conventional wisdom, that is a contrarian take. Many observers and analysts and historians are saying these are early signs of Putin's fall. Richard does not agree. So I wanted to bring him on the podcast and hop on for a quick conversation so he can unpack what he's seeing so far. Again, he himself recognizes it's still early days, but this is his analysis of what he's seeing so far. As listeners to this podcast know, Richard Fontaine is the CEO of the Center for New American Security, a bipartisan foreign policy think tank in Washington. Prior to leading CNAS, he was a foreign policy advisor to Senator John McCain and worked at the State Department in the George W. Bush administration and the National Security Council and also on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee before that. He also today serves on the Biden administration's Defense Policy Board, which advises the Pentagon. So Richard actually has real-time insights into the thinking of the current administration and its handling of this crisis. And he also has a tremendous network in NATO countries from his years working in foreign policy. So he's an ideal guest to help us at least understand where we are in early innings of this crisis or non-crisis, depending on your take. Richard Fontaine, with his contrarian take on the Wagner putsch against Putin. This is Call Me Back. And I'm pleased to welcome back to this podcast my longtime friend, Richard Fontaine, the CEO of the Center for New American Security, former Bush administration national security official, longtime advisor to Senator John McCain and the Armed, Senate Armed Services Committee, and a close watcher of events in Russia and Ukraine, a part of the world that he has traveled to frequently. Richard, thanks for jumping on this conversation with me, especially on short notice. It's good to be back. It took a 24-hour civil war to get me back, but uh, here I am. Whatever it takes. You know, I, I, I think that um, events have to get crazy in the world 
for you to come back on this podcast. But it's not just that. It, events have to get crazy in the world for you and I just to like catch up and compare notes. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like yeah. yeah, it's 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 perfectly correlated with the chaos in the world. Is I bet you, you have you a lot of friendships. I bet I, I bet you have a lot of friendships <laughs> like that, right? I mean, so many of your yeah, friendships maybe, are probably maybe a, fueled by maybe a few. <laughs> yeah. What you know? Civil War. Are we talking about this weekend? But this weekend, we actually did seem to have um, the sparks of a of a civil war, which you are um, skeptical uh, about in terms of its what, what it actually tells us that is happening in Russia and, and Putin's hold on power, which we'll get to in a minute. But before we do, I just want to quote here uh, from an interview that Stephen Kotkin, who you know from Stanford University, uh, historian, longtime um, Russia watcher and historian, has written a, a three-volume uh, actually, really, two volumes that are only that are published so far: a biography of Stalin of Joseph Stalin. The third volume actually isn't published yet, but apparently, it's close to being finished. Very, very thoughtful guy. I'm going to quote from uh, something he said over the weekend. Here, he said, "I've long been calling the Putin regime hollow yet still strong. Hollow yet still strong. It remained and remains viable as long as there is no political alternative." Now, we might just see how hollow the regime is. Putin has unwittingly launched a stress test of his own regime. He has already lost his mystique with the bungling of the aggression against Ukraine. Mystique once lost is near impossible to regain. The old cliche about the emperor in clothes. He still possesses enormous power rooted in structures he built around himself, such as the Praetorian Guard, and those he unbuilt. His raising of the landscape of political possibilities besides himself and severe repression to demobilize the populace. Almost every coup fails, Kotkin says. The odds are long. But at least now there are odds. There is one thing that all dictators properly fear, an alternative. And Putin, shockingly, after years and years, have been fatigably suppressing alternatives of promoting non-entities to his inner circle to ensure no one could threaten him, has allowed one to take shape. So, the one he is saying that Kotkin is saying has taken shape is Prigozhin, who's been much in the news over the last couple of days. For those of our listeners who do not know who Prigozhin is and who his history is, before we evaluate what Kotkin says here, whether or not, while the odds may be long, that at least there are odds now, before we get into any of that, can you tell us who Yevgeny Prigozhin was before this weekend's events kicked into high gear? Sure. Yevgeny Prigozhin is uh, someone who's been close to Vladimir Putin for years, probably decades. He's been a professional thug and grifter uh, who's done quite well for himself. He spent most of the 1980s in jail in the Soviet Union for robbery and a series of other crimes. Uh, got his start with Putin. Did almost a decade in jail, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and started out with Putin um, as his chef and caterer. So he started securing great catering contracts and started to make money on the basis of that and had proximity to Putin and uh, sort of expanded out uh, from there. Over the years, he became, uh, he was put in charge of the Wagner group, this mercenary group of fighters for nine did years. He, did he create the Wagner group? Did the Wagner group... It started with him and okay. and... Uh, for nine years, he denied that he had anything to do with the Wagner group, and 
Putin and the Russian government denied that the Wagner Group had anything to do with Russia. Um, but of course, both of those things were untrue, as so much of these things are. Uh, and a couple of years ago, he came out and started to uh, kind of trumpet the Wagner Group as a heroic uh, Russian valiant uh, kind of set of fighters, and especially but not limited to in Ukraine. He uh, has had the Wagner Group operating in a bunch of countries. They, they operated in Syria, they're in Mali, they're in other places in Africa. Uh, so he sort of spread them around. It's been kind of one of Putin's uh, quasi-deniable, but not really uh, mercenary forces that he could dispatch. Uh, but who, but who, does, who does Prigozhin and Wagner ultimately report to? To Putin, ultimately. So, so and that th- this is why there's been this tension with between Prigozhin and the defense minister, and the Russian defense minister. That's right. right. And so Prigozhin has had a huge falling out with the defense minister and with the chief of general staff, General Gerasimov. I mean, the Wagner Group was largely autonomous as opposed to independent. And so the Russian military itself could employ the Wagner Group to do things. But ultimately, everybody has reported to Putin. And I think even in this latest... um, 24-hour sort of spectacle, you can see that it took a whole lot for Prigozhin to even suggest that he was crossing Putin. He was spending months railing against uh, Soyju and and Gerasimov, the defense minister and the chief of general staff, for being ineffective on the ground in Ukraine, for not giving the Wagner group uh, sufficient uh, munitions and ammunition. Uh, what seems to really have bugged him, however, and I don't see that much of that in uh, in this in the coverage, is not uh, just that he thought, you know, the war is not going well and these corrupt and incompetent officials have gotten us into it and all of that. He does seem to have thought that, but what seems to have forced the issue is that uh, the defense uh, ministry set a deadline of July 1st by which all of the Wagner Group fighters had to sign a contract to join the defense ministry, which is to say Wagner would go away as an independent entity run by Prigozhin. And that seems to be the thing that he wouldn't tolerate. And so, and, it, and just to be clear, around. is that something the defense minister wanted? Uh, what is it? Shoigu? How do you pronounce Shoigu. Shoigu, yeah. right. Sergei Shoigu. Yeah. Is that something Shoigu wanted or Putin wanted? Putin wanted it. I mean, he gave it to the defense ministry to implement, and they said that they were going to sign contracts by July 1st. And why did Putin want it? I think because, uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I mean, the Wagner Group had uh, done, you know, provided a useful service uh, in the kind of narrowly construed interests of the Russian regime in Bakhmut and in a couple of other areas by providing essentially cannon fodder largely recruited from prisons. Uh, They would send them into the city and uh, that would expose Ukrainian uh, artillery positions, and then they would uh, bomb those positions. But the casualty rate was just astronomically high among the Wagner group. Once Bakhmut was finally taken, which is a very long battle, and that was sort of Wagner's big claim to fame on the ground, uh, they turned it over to the Russian defense forces. So the Russian army moved in to occupy it. So the Wagner group had, you know, one, it's been very, it's been really decimated in terms of its numbers. Uh, and two, it's probably the highest utility, at least this year, has already been used. But I think also because, uh, you know, 
they were looking kind of unassailable, I think, getting a little big, a little big for their britches here uh, with um, with Prigozhin, you know, out constantly slamming the course of the war and the defense minister and and the general who is the uh, chief of uh, the general staff. And I think ultimately Putin sided with the two of them and not with Prigozhin. Now, Prigozhin, just to stay on him for a moment, he is from St. Petersburg, mm-hmm. as is Putin. You called him a thug, which which I guess in one sense he is, but he's, he's I, I guess that doesn't um, reflect the, the level of kind of sophistication he has about politics and about media and politics and about technology and the military. I mean, to just say he's a thug, kind of say... You know, he's he's not just some low-level military boss. I mean, he's he's a, sounds like he's a pretty astute political player. He's become more astute, certainly over the years. The Wagner Group has used the tel- their Telegram channel, right. and he has posted these videos and voice messages and things that then get picked up and are distributed around uh, Russian military blogs and in broader media and things like that. And I mean, what? And he's I a pretty clever custodian of his own image. I mean, he's he kind is, of, he yeah, charisma. So, yeah, exactly. And so, over the last few months, he's been going around Russia giving these big speeches. Right, uh, that's what I'm you know, and to. sort of and polishing. Some of these videos have gone viral. Right, which is why people have said that he may be the only sort of political alternative to Putin. I mean, it's you have to squint pretty hard to see him as a real political alternative because of where he came from and because, you know, compared to Putin, he's still, you know, this guy who runs a mercenary army who, you know, goes out and gives sort of, you know, impassioned speeches uh, about, you know, Russian uh, valor and so forth. But nevertheless, I mean, one of the lessons of all this is for those who've sort of waited for the political alternative to Putin to be the Russian liberals, (laughs) there were no Russian liberals to be had, right? They're all in jail, like Alexei Navalny, or they're in, uh, or in Vladimir Karamurza, or they're in exile, like you know Mikhail Khodorkovsky or Gary Kasparov, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, to the degree to which there is a political alternative, Prigozhin is a guy who has said that the war is not being fought in Ukraine effectively because it's not essentially brutal enough. And he said that Russia needs to turn it into a North Korean-style state in order to successfully prosecute the war in Ukraine. Yeah. By the way, Prigozhin's also uh, under indictment um, by the by the United States because he owned the troll farms that were active in, the, in uh, the meddling in the, in the presidential election in the right. United States in 2016. So um, as much as people saw that march on Moscow and said, oh, you know, Putin may be finally getting a taste of his own medicine. It's pretty hard to root for yeah, Prigozhin and the Wagner group. Too. The flip side is, while we all would hope it's a Navalny type, uh, the reality is, I mean, just if you just cold, you know, cynical analysis could easily lead you to believe that if you really want to challenge on Putin, it has to come from the inside. It has to be a right. true Putin style Russian I, nationalist I, I, who yeah. could play to Putin's base. And that has an army. Right. Right. I mean, so that's the key thing in all of this is, you know, I mean, if you go back to sort of political theory and Max Weber saying that, you know, the state had to have a monopoly on the use of violence. Mm -hmm. If you got an army, it's great as long as it reports to you. And when it doesn't, then suddenly you've got yourself a problem. 
and nobody else i mean the the the, the chechens kind of have their own army mm-hmm. and they came out uh, and pledged fealty to putin and opposition to Prigozhin when this whole thing began and actually were pulled back from ukraine to try to deal with some of this um but uh but Prigozhin was a guy with an army so if we say that putin is the ultimate you know machiavelli uh as machiavelli pointed out looking at renaissance italy it was like a a sterling example of the dangers of relying on mercenary troops. Right, right. So right. how did Putin let this happen? Well, I think part of this goes back— I mean, back it, to, it seems like the quintessential, like, own goal. You know, like, you, yes, there's, there's lots of temptations about relying on, on mercenary troops, as you've laid out what Putin saw in it. But, it, again, Machiavelli said, big danger, and we just, yeah. like, it fits the criteria of what would be necessary to, to topple Putin. Well, I think there's a couple things. One, I think this was probably unthinkable for quite a long time. Two, the Wagner Group had been used in places that weren't close or very close to Russia most of the time. I mean, if even if they wanted to, the Wagner Group wasn't going to turn from Syria and march on Moscow. It wasn't going to turn from Mali and march on Moscow. It wasn't going to turn from other places in Africa. But it turned out Ukraine was right next door. And the, Putin tripled down on the use of Wagner in Ukraine. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, the Wagner guys have been much more effective in fighting if just from a sheer, you know, what you get and, and, and all of that uh, standpoint than the Russian military. One, because they're willing to take unlimited amount of casualties in order to accomplish their objective, no matter how brutal and bloody that becomes. And two, their decisions are mostly made on the ground, as opposed to the sclerotic nature of the orders given that go back in the Russian military, usually back up to Moscow or maybe to, to Rostov if the, uh, if the commanders are there and then back down, which has made them so not nimble and so inflexible that they've missed many opportunities that they could have had in Ukraine. So I think that's why... Putin wanted to use Wagner and why the value of Wagner and of Prigozhin to Putin was high and why he let Prigozhin get away with saying the kind of things that he was saying for such a long time. And of course, the other thing was Prigozhin wasn't saying those things about Putin, right? He was saying those basically... Well, indirectly. I mean... Well, but it was also to some degree a useful foil. It was, you know the leader's getting bad advice, the right. leader's getting bad information. He's got bad advisors around him. If only the leader knew the reality, the leader would do different things, a.k.a. it's not his fault, right? right. It, it's it's the fault of Shoigu and, and Gerasimov and, and these other guys. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, seemingly pushed by this demand to reintegrate uh, and then what... Uh, what they believe to be, you know, insufficient support for Wagner uh, and overall kind of, you know, ineffectiveness in the war, it seems to have come to a head. And he, instead of marching west, he turned around and went the other way. So we'll get to that in a moment. But you mentioned Rostov. So Rostov is where the southern military, the Russian southern military headquarters is, which is the, you know, the principal military hub in Russia for, for Putin's war in Ukraine. So what exactly did Wagner accomplish in Rostov? Before before they reached this this you know de-escalation, yeah. So they were in field um, camps in Ukraine on the Ukrainian side of the border. The first thing that they accomplished was to march uh, unmolested into the Russian side of the border. 
which, you know, you, they crossed the border checkpoints and no one stopped them. And it's not clear anyone tried to stop them. Uh, those checkpoints are not manned by Wagner uh, personnel. So that was indicative of, at a minimum, the lack of violent opposition to the Wagner group moving. And at a okay, maximum, stop, maybe stop right there sympathy. for one second. So does, I mean, again, I know, and we're going to get to this. I know you're skeptical about the broader implications of all of this, but it doesn't that even tell you, I mean, we're all told that coups generally fail, but the first signs of a weak regime is the security forces that report to the leader of that regime are reluctant to shoot at yes. someone pressuring the regime. Here you had forces marching into the, the military headquarters at Rostov, and as you're describing these checkpoints, people manning the checkpoints were conning, kind of letting them proceed. Yeah, so they went past the checkpoints on the border right to Rostov and then essentially walked into the city and took over a couple of key buildings. And the number of people involved in this is still unclear, but it sounds like it was maybe four or 5,000 people and maybe, I don't know, 100 or 150 vehicles or something like that. So like Who a brigade, exactly the equivalent the of like a brigade. But, I mean, yes, if you step back from this and say four or 5,000 guys would get together with, you know, 100 or at max 200 vehicles and cross the Russian border, march into the Southern Military District, and then announce to the world that they're going to march on Moscow and start doing it. Uh, and the response would be, as it was, uh, a couple of some plane, not a couple, it sounds like maybe up to eight or nine or 10 or 12 uh, Russian plane and helicopters were shot down uh, by the Wagner group when it was kind of on the road. Uh, they traveled with mobile air defenses. And so they did things like put dump trucks in the middle of the road to stop them. And then uh, they just plowed through that stuff, it appears. And, you know, next thing you know, you see uh, Russian troops and police trying to destroy, air, you know, basically dig up the highway on the approaches to Moscow. I, I mean, this is not how you advertise one's great power credentials, right? I right. mean, that, you know, the, right. the, these guys want to fight the West. Uh, <laughs> I, I did see one snarky kind of comment that said, you know, the Russian military in 2021 was the second best in the world. In 2022, it was the second best in Ukraine. In 2023, it was the second best in Russia. I mean, this is not going in the right direction mm -hmm. uh, for these guys. So yes, uh, I, my, my skepticism more about the broader political implications, but certainly, I mean, this is a shocking, stunning turn of events, the likes of which I don't think anybody really anticipated. Okay. And then again, I, I, I do want to get to your skepticism, which again, I think is, is a contrarian take. But before we do, where are we now? As, as the week begins, uh, the the work week, the business week begins, uh, when this episode will be posted, wh where do things stand? Uh, uh, Wagner seems to have reached some some agreement or some accommodation with, with Alexander Lu Lukashenko. So what, like, what, what is the deal? Why Lukashenko? Like, what's going on? Yeah, and I would say that my money's not on Lukashenko to win the Nobel Peace Prize, um, <laughs> despite the reputation of uh, some of the Peace Prize winners over the years. Uh, but he did appear to have brokered a deal between uh, Putin or the people around Putin and uh, Prigozhin himself. And the deal was that the Wagner 
personnel who had not engaged in the act of rebellion would, as had been previously planned, sign contracts to join the Russian Ministry of Defense. Those who did uh, would not be prosecuted, and that includes Prigozhin. They, less than 24 hours before, had said they're traitors, and you know there was a warrant out for his arrest and, and all of that. So that was lifted. And then Prigozhin himself would fly off to Belarus and take up residence there. He hasn't so far been seen in Belarus, according to any reporting. But that's the deal. Uh, in exchange for that, the Prigozhin's forces would turn around and go back to Ukraine. Uh, and that's exactly what they have done. They were on the approaches to Moscow on the roads. They turned around and started driving back the other way. They were occupying um, a couple of key installations, including an airfield in Rostov. They turned that over to the local uh, military forces, and it appears they're headed back for their their camps in Ukraine. And the kind of overall... I think spirit that the Russian government now is trying to sort of peddle is we're all brothers, we're all of the same blood. Now let's gang up and kill as many Ukrainians as possible, which is you know been the plan all along. Um, and, and Lukashenko so, is is a junior partner to Putin. Yeah, he is yeah. basically controlled by Putin. Does this make Lukashenko look like a bigger player than he than we actually thought of him, or or does it actually? fit with the with the sort of hierarchy that Putin would have some subordinate kind of make Wagner go away. I think it's it fits. I mean Belarus is a now a quasi independent country that is dependent on and controlled by Moscow in many ways. Uh Lukashenko has been in power for a very long time. They've people have referred to uh, Belarus is, you know, the North Korea of Europe. So maybe Prigozhin will feel right at home when he arrives. Um, but I don't know that this tells us anything particularly new about the relationship between Lukashenko and Putin or between Belarus and Russia, other than Putin found a useful intermediary, presumably either because Putin himself wasn't going to do negotiations with, you know, what he was saying was a treasonous kind of, you know, two-bit, uh, he called them scum and the whole thing. And it could have also been the case that Prigozhin wasn't going to negotiate with Gerasimov or with Shoigu. Mm -hmm. And so Lukashenko was as good as anybody as an intermediary. And before we get into your your analysis of what's really going on, how, how do we know, I mean, I just want to be, give voice to the conspiracy theorists, uh, not, not that we have a big audience of conspiracy theorists, but to the extent Never. that we do, we have some. How do we know this was actually really some kind of coup attempt? Could I mean, Wagner is, is also a profit-seeking venture. Uh, and who says that, that you know, Prigozhin wasn't just trying to kind of collect debts and be, be rewarded financially, and this was just an effort to put the squeeze on Putin at a vulnerable time? It doesn't look like that was what was at issue here. And if that was, then it was a major screw up. I mean, his offices in St. Petersburg were raided and they took his cash. Uh, they had, you know, he pays his fighters in cash and they took huge bundles of cash. So if it was a financial motive, he's behind where he was before. Um, you know, if he does indeed show up in Belarus for some sort of, you know, gilded exile for a while I mean, he's lost control of the most valuable thing he's had um 
So it's hard to say, I mean, it's hard to disprove that motive, but certainly the facts don't seem to bear that up. What it seems to be uh, is he had in his head that he was going to force a change in the military leadership and uh, how exactly he was going to do that. And this is where I differ with some of the observers who say, you know, this looks like, you know, carefully planned out and well organized. I mean, I was very interested to see when they were on the road to Moscow what they were going to do when they got there. I mean, are right. they going <laughs> to assault the the Kremlin with a brigade, or right. were they going to go to the defense ministry and against go against against a, a a military that has an air force? <laughs> right, and and get you know they, again they shot down planes and the whole thing, so you can never say never. And you know there there could have been. Uh, Forces had defected to the Wagner side. And, you know, I mean, the, these things happen. Uh, I mean, you know, people march on capitals and, and, and either the forces do nothing or they flip to the, the rebellious side. So anything's possible. But there didn't seem to be a plan other than we're going to Moscow on this, you know, sort of minis- this mission of justice. Uh, and, you know, who knows? So it, it seemed there seemed to be a lot of improvisation to me. Yeah. OK, so. I want to quote here from uh, from uh, Tim Snyder, who Timothy Snyder, mm-hmm. professor at Yale, historian, another historian like Gotkin, who's sort of a giant in this space, published extensively. Uh, he said over the weekend, um, "Wars." I'm quoting here: "Wars end when the domestic political system is under pressure." Meaning, wars don't necessarily end when one side is just shows tremendous, you know, strength superiority advantage to the other side although i guess it could end then but but when you really start to see the end of a war is when the when the domestic political system on one side just says you know we're overheating we can't handle it and everything you just described what happened in rostov checkpoints you know them breezing through checkpoints you know no real seeming outrage on the streets against wagner in the streets of moscow or anywhere else just a sense that like I don't know. There, there. Pe- people didn't. There wasn't a sense, at least projected in the media we were following, that the country was rallying to Putin against Wagner. Is this an expression or reflection of the fact that Snyder would say the system is just the political system, not the military system? The political system is suddenly under pressure. And by the way, could you have seen that in the speech that Putin gave? Comparing this to 1917, and I mean, isn't that all an expression of the political system being under pressure? Yeah, it's definitely under pressure. I don't think it's under so much pressure, it's on the verge of cracking. Um, and if you look at, again, the guys who were in security positions, whether it was, you know, key generals in, including key generals in the Russian military who were close to Prigozhin, they all came out and said, essentially, Prigozhin's uh, traitor. We don't support the rebellion. We support Putin. You know, the Chechens came out. So uh, other than Prigozhin, no one came out affirmatively. What I saw in the streets was more apathy than, I mean, yes, okay. when, when they pulled out of Rostov, they had people cheering for yeah. him. I don't know how many of those people were actually there doing that. Um, and so there's some constituency for Wagner, particularly in a place like Rostov, which is kind of a forward base of operations and planning for the war in Ukraine. So they're quite familiar there. And Wagner had been in that area and all of this. Um, But, you know, you could explain the lack of um, 
resistance to Wagner, one by saying, well, you know, these individual soldiers that could have stopped Wagner decided not to because they were sympathetic to him or they were just they weren't loyal uh, to the government. Or you could say they just didn't have any orders because nobody in a timely fashion told them what to do about any of this. And I think both are plausible explanations at this point. I just don't think we know. So, um, yes, I mean, you if you're running a dictatorship, you certainly don't want uh, uh, an army marching uh, to your, to your capital. And so it does show weakness in the political system. Um, but weakness itself is not enough often to bring these things down, if that's what we're speculating about. And the other thing that I think is worth observing is Prigozhin has not been calling for an end of the war in Ukraine because it's too costly. He's been saying that we need to fight this more effectively and more brutally than it has been fought before and with less restraint than it has been fought before. So um, that is different than, you know, protests on the streets that believe the price in Russian blood and treasure has gotten unacceptably high and therefore there has to be some kind of change. Okay. That's not what this was. Okay. So I want to, uh, just quote one other person here, our friend Michael, Mike McFall. So for our listeners, McFall is the, was President Obama's ambassador to Moscow, longtime Putin watcher. He served on the National Security Council uh, for the Obama administration before he was ambassador. Uh, we, Richard, you and I will be with, with Mike in a couple of weeks. Uh, I But I'm, I'm going to draw out Mike here because you disagree with him. So that's good. I want to quote from uh, something he said here over the weekend. He says, since the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, analysts and officials have claimed that Putin will never back down, that he needs a face-saving win, example, Ukrainian territory, to end his war. Events yesterday completely undermined that assumption. Putin has talked tough in his national address. Uh, Putin talked tough in his national address. He sounded like someone preparing for a big fight. But when faced with the difficult decision of trying to stop Wagner mercenaries with major force, he backed down. He didn't escalate. He did not escalate. He did not need a face-saving off-ramp to declare victory. When faced with the possibility of really losing to Wagner mercenaries coming into Moscow, he just capitulated. Instead of doubling down with more force to crush the mutiny, Putin accepted humiliation instead. He was the rat trapped in the corner that so many Putinologists have told us to fear. But he didn't lash out and go crazy. He negotiated, and with a traitor. The lesson of the war in Ukraine, McFall goes on, is clear. Putin is more likely to negotiate and end, this, and end his war if he is losing on the battlefield. Those who have argued that Ukraine must not attack Crimea for fear of triggering escalation must now reevaluate that hypothesis. The sooner Putin fears he is losing the war, the faster he will negotiate. That's Mike McFall. What is your reaction? Well, you and I love Mike McFall for we do. very good reasons. And uh, I actually agree with his conclusion at the end uh, that, you know, we that when Putin believes that he's losing in Ukraine, uh, only then might he negotiate an end of the war. I don't, though, believe that that's the lesson of what we just saw. I think that, uh, I mean, some of this is a matter of interpretation and everything Mike described is of course, accurate, but you could also uh, say, well, okay, you had the only army that could plausibly revolt, which was the Wagner Group, did so, uh, announced a march on Moscow, 
within 24 hours, you had all of the other senior military officials, including the Chechens in this kind of autonomous uh, military of their own, come out and swear fealty to Putin and denounce uh, Prigozhin, what he was trying to do. Um, they came into the country, and in less than a day, without having to use force against Russians in Russia in a major way, You've got Prigozhin in exile in Belarus. You've got the Wagner group agreeing to be absorbed into the, uh, in, into the Russian military, and it's over. And who's in the Kremlin? And who's in charge? And Shoigu's still there, and Gerasimov's still there. So, I mean, Prigozhin did not achieve his stated objectives. Um, so, I, I mean, again, some of this is a matter of interpretation. I do think, though, Mike makes an important point at the end, which is that, um, you know, I think... Our, our worries about escalation in Ukraine are real and important, but the worries that this war will go on forever and that a long war will benefit Russia more than Ukraine, I think, is greater still. And so that we should be um, less restricted in the kind of weapon systems we give to the Ukrainians and the kind of uh, restrictions that we try to impose on them about what they can do. Uh, in places like Crimea or in or in uh, across the border in Russia itself. So, 1991, there's a coup attempt against Gorbachev. This the the Gorbachev seems to have secured the situation, but like four four or five months later, he steps down. Yep. So, could we be seeing a version of that now? It may not be four months. It could be eight months. It could be four weeks. But you know, you see the crack. The, the the crack is is sealed you know <laughs> and um, and everything is suppressed and then it incentivizes other actors to make a move because Putin looks weaker than they thought many years ago under uh, in a different world I went with uh, my old boss Senator McCain to Crimea and we visited the dacha uh, down there on the Black Sea where uh, Gorbachev had, was when the coup uh, went into place and they've left the, the, the sort of office there. The wow. Was with his glasses on the desk. Is and, it still there? Is, it, oh, is all still, that still there, preserved? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it's it's now the, the dacha for the president of Ukraine. Um, <laughs> but, uh, well, I would say it was the dacha. Right. When we visited, it right. was the dacha for the president of Ukraine. Now, presumably, it's being used by some Crimean right. Russian apparatchik. Um, but it was fascinating to see how this had gone down. And then also, you know, if anybody's read any of the history or is old enough to have seen a little bit of this, I mean, the utter incompetence of those coup plotters where they finally go out to give a press uh, conference to announce what they've done to sort of save the Soviet Union. And they're drunk. I mean, they, they, they're slurring their speech and, you know, forget not have a plan. I mean, they couldn't get through a press conference and, and all of this. So um, I don't know how causal that was in bringing the end of the Soviet Union and the end of Gorbachev's reign. I mean, if we do the thought experiment and say that that coup had not happened at all, but you still had Russian nationalists as opposed to Soviet nationalists, Boris Yeltsin, um, agitating on the streets and trying to rally people uh, in a kind of Russian nationalist way, and you still had the same 
uh, kind of uh, centrifugal forces in all the republics. They were all feeling these nationalist impulses at the same time. And, uh, and you still had Gorbachev, who was unwilling to spill huge volumes of blood in order to preserve either his own rule or the Soviet Union as a political entity. Um, so if you didn't have that coup, you had all those other things. Would Gorbachev have lasted longer? Maybe. Uh, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, so, but I don't know. Um, now, the, the, but the real question, of course, is the one you asked, and it's a huge question mark, which is, okay, are we going to look back as this was the beginning of the end of the Putin's right. regime, or is this going to be more akin to the attempted coup in Turkey, where Erdogan came out of this stronger than he did before, and he was able to throw anybody he wanted he thought was a, a potential opposition figure in jail, and uh, and, you know, there, here he is to this day, um, having just been reelected, you know, very recently. I don't know. It, it's hard to say. I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't bet on anyone dislodging Putin anytime soon, uh, simply because in order to paint that picture, you have to identify who that person would be and with what force or uh, incentives for those with force, uh, forcible means to defect, are they going to do that? And the guy who was most willing to oppose Putin, at least in broad strokes, was Prigozhin. The guy who had the biggest army that could do this was Prigozhin, and Prigozhin's on his way to Belarus. I think the people around Putin are too scared, uh, and he's too dominant a figure uh, for that to happen. But the quote that you cited at the very beginning is true simultaneously, which is that these regimes are often like hollow trees. So by the, you know, the outside, you can't see any difference in the bark until somebody punches it. And it turns out that it was, you know, hollow on the inside and the whole thing collapses. Uh, It's just extremely difficult to predict when that would happen. Uh, And if you look over the course of Russian history, I mean, who would have thought that the, you know, the great purge and the Ukraine famine uh, they killed, you know, nine million people in the Great Purge in the, in the 1930s and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, who would have thought that that would be insufficiently galvanizing for someone to want to remove Joseph Stalin? But the guy died in bed, or right. died in his dacha. Right? Meaning he he survived all of that. He survived it right. all. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so where was the Ukraine counteroffensive before events of this weekend, and where is it now? The counteroffensive has gotten started a couple of weeks ago. They started a little bit before that with some, as they call them, shaping operations. And they've been trying to make uh, inroads into key uh, areas to sort of probe the Russian lines and see if there's some vulnerability to collapse on those lines. The Ukrainians have said that in the last few days they've taken a couple of areas, including at least one um, that was previously under the control of Russian partisans before the 2022 invasion. But that said, the lines haven't moved a whole lot. The Western train brigades are starting to arrive now. So I think the real test uh, of that counteroffensive is going to be between now and probably the next month or two. Um, The Russians didn't withdraw any troops from the battle lines in Ukraine in order to deal with this uprising. The kind of wild card in all of this is the Wagner group. So if the Wagner group really goes away and it's been quite effective on the battlefield, again, for a horribly bloody, cynical, terrible way of fighting, but you know, it took Bakhmut and it's taken some other areas and it's held other areas. So if you don't have that, 
and you're left only with the ill-performing Russian military, then does that change anything? And that, I don't know. We'll have to see. And where does this leave the U.S. and NATO in terms of their handling of the situation yeah. and, and more broadly the war? Well, I mean, as they watched this, there was the old Napoleon line, which I guess has been transposed into modern-day politics, right. which is, you know, if your adversaries in the process of injuring themselves— Get out of the way. You get out of the way, right? Yeah. So this is the same thing in politics, right? You know, uh, and, and they did that, and they just sort of watched this, and, and other countries did as well. Um, but I think this puts—I um, think this does a couple of things. I mean, one— uh, from the the perspective of the war in Ukraine, I don't think that much in the, the NATO, the Western, the U.S. posture has changed. I think still kind of, you know, full support, full-throated support in terms of equipment and training and everything else for the Ukrainians. Um, but two, you know, there was worries from time to time about what Russian instability would look like, given that the world's biggest nuclear arsenal is held by the Russians. And right. It doesn't appear to anything had changed or nothing moved or there didn't seem to be anything um, acutely worrisome in the past 24 hours. But, you know, if that's a crack that could appear in this political edifice, then presumably, despite my sort of pessimism, I guess, that there will be other big cracks to appear anytime soon, it's not to say you can eliminate that uh, prospect. And, you know, we, we all have a vested interest in making sure that there's a you know, intact nuclear uh, command and control chain and and custody of the of the weapons and and authorities and and all of that stuff. So I think that will probably get even more attention than it did before the war. All right, Richard, we will um, leave it there. I mean, we know we're about what is it? Probably eight months away from the two year anniversary of this war. Amazing, right? Yeah. <sighs> And, and I think I think that we'll be fighting on that on that day, unfortunately. So you think this, this thing bleeds past two years? Yeah. I mean, from the very beginning, I probably said it on your show when we yeah. thought that would be a one episoder uh, kind of thing, right? <laughs> which which it wasn't. Uh, but I thought from the very beginning that uh, unfortunately this was going to be a long war. And of course, you looked at the war. One could look at the war in the eastern part of Ukraine in the Donbass, that at that point was eight years old. Uh, and had killed about 12,000 people, which at the time was a huge number. I mean, we've exceeded those on both sides by just unconscionable numbers. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see the trade space in a negotiation in the foreseeable future between Russia and Ukraine over the things they are in violent disagreement with unless there's some collapse of the Russian lines somewhere that leads Putin to become more pragmatic and say that he would settle for something that today he clearly is not willing to settle. Even then, you've got problems, right? Because he could use that time to rearm and, and regroup and try to do what he has wanted to do all along. Um, but if you have to project forward, unfortunately, I think you project forward more fighting. But before, before we let you go, there's been lots of speculation what the implications are for Beijing and all of this. Much of the analysis I'm I'm seeing points to this being very bad for for Xi and and China. The 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 pressure on the regime and what the impl implications are. Even if you say the implications are not as big as we think, or some may think. Where do you come out on what this all means for China or how China will look at this? I think you know if you look at this in the big kind of global picture. 
Russia's become for China the drunk, embarrassing uncle at the uh, Thanksgiving table, where you know they're now related to him. They've they've signed up. They're with the Russians through thick and thin. Uh, but the Chinese are trying to portray themselves as worthy of global leadership and presenting a reasonable alternative to a Western-based, Western-led international order and all these other kinds of things. And Russia is, over time, showing itself to be uh, less effective militarily than when China and Russia announced this quasi-alliance right before the war began, uh, less politically uh, coherent than before, less competent than before, poorer than before. And that's not good when you're looking for an ally. You want the, all those things to be in the other direction. And then from the narrative perspective, uh, you know, the Russians and the Chinese have liked to point to the democracies, and particularly the Western democracies, as divided, sclerotic, ineffective, not able to deliver to the people the things that they're that those people want, whereas, you know, these kind of tech-fueled autocracies are nimble, decisive, undivided, unified, efficient. Where'd you rather live? Right. Right. So not in Rostov on Don, I will tell you that. Right. So Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I will um I will see you in a couple of weeks. Uh I'm sure we will uh have plenty to talk about then and plenty to talk about the next time we have you on this podcast because to your point we will we will probably cruise right into two years of this war and still sadly lots lots to discuss yeah. all right all right thank you richard Until next time all right. thank you dan talk to you soon That's our show for today. To keep up with Richard's work, you can go to cnas.org. That's C-N-A-S.org. That is the website for the Center for New American Security. And also you can follow Richard on Twitter. He's at R-H Fontaine. That's F-O-N-T-A-I-N-E, R-H Fontaine. Call Me Back is produced by Alon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. Dan Senor.